if you're just tuning in, uh, thank you for being here live on Twitter and on YouTube. We appreciate you. Um, as a reminder, our show is also on Spotify. It's on iTunes. It's on any of the other um, like C-level podcast platforms that I'm sure you don't listen to. And um, we're joined here by Frank Alexander. Uh, Frank and I connected earlier this year. It was earlier this year over just some injury stuff. And I can't remember. I think we connected from a Elite Baseball Performance article. Yeah, right? through yeah. Mike Reinold. Yeah, Mike's a good guy. Um, obviously, another industry leader. And uh, so Frank is part of the rehab team with Dr. Chris Ahmad, who is the New York Yankees team doctor. So we're going to get into a lot of stuff today. And so if you're tuning in, uh, especially from my email list, uh, we're going to talk about baseball injuries. We're also going to talk about softball injuries because that's something I really want to bring out to the forefront. So if you're a softball person, definitely stick around. This is not just going to be baseball centric because uh, I think we have a bunch of myths I'd, I'd like to kind of clear up a little bit today, especially on the softball side. So how did you get hooked up with Dr. Ahmad's team? And I mean, so you see all the big guys, obviously, but what's your clientele like on a given day as an athletic trainer? So we see patients of all ages, and it's from on the baseball side and softball side of things from the little leagues to the major leagues. And we also see your average patient who is a 56-year-old and has a rotator cuff tear. So we see the broad spectrum. We see patients that have shoulder, knee, elbow injuries, and the knee injuries are more of what we call the athletic knee. So ACL tears, meniscus tears, stuff like that. We're not really treating too much of the arthritic knees. We don't do total joint replacements in our office, but we do obviously Tommy John surgery, labrum repair surgeries for both baseball players and football players that dislocate their shoulder, uh, all those types of mostly the athletic injuries, but we do see uh, what I'll call the quote unquote average patient. Okay. Um, Bobby, what injuries did you have during your career? Do you have any, or are you just one of those lucky? <laughs> uh, I never had any arm injuries. Um, the big one was my last year in the Atlantic league. Uh, was it the year we played 2014? Oh, you, had I, a, uh, you had a hernia, torn right? Groin. Oh, yeah, that's right. torn groin. That was, uh, that was painful <laughs> to say the <laughs> least. And, uh, independent ball is not exactly, uh, pushing surgery. So rehab was, it was basically just a five, five week rehab, four week rehab. And they give you what, like four strips of masking tape that you have to, <laughs> oh, listen, it's more like, don't more use of, these all at once. So yeah. It's like an elite, they give you an leave allotment. Yeah. And Frank, you were, you were, you were a catcher. So you went to, uh, you played ball at Dominican university or Dominican college. Dominican sorry. college. Yeah. That's all right. Yeah. And what's, I played, and what's uh, your injury history there? I actually tore my quad and during our conditioning week in the beginning of January when we all first reported to campus and I just said, you know what, it was my freshman year. I was redshirting that year, so I, I felt like I had something to prove. So I just kept running on it actually. Oof. Yeah. yeah that's, that's, <laughs> that's rough. So did it stay attached to your leg or did you have to like pick it up and like carry it home like a, like a newborn or? <laughs> we we had uh, guys pushing me along in all of our sprints, which was fun. Yeah, so it was, so. it was more of a team building thing than it was a. Uh, I don't know how much conditioning we actually did. It was more more to build character. Yeah, so I, I think that's really <laughs> important that you know, especially as a as a trainer who works helping to rehab athletes, that you understand the athlete's condition. So tell me a little bit more about your time at Dominican, your time as a ball player. Um, and what kind of perspective do you feel like that's helped give you working with predominantly ballplayers now? 
Yeah, that's an awesome question, Dan. And a lot of what I do as an athletic trainer now, it my history as a player really helped kind of mold what I'm able to do. And what really helps me able to connect to these athletes is I was in their position, whether it may not have been with an elbow or a shoulder injury, but I've been on the sidelines. I I understand kind of what they're going through. So it's tough. I've had so many teammates. uh, Some of my best friends have had Tommy John surgery. So to have that personal level of uh, attachment to the injuries really helps me with our patients these days. Yeah. I know it's, it's especially when you're, you're doing something you don't want to do. Like there's lots of tedium. Obviously I've been through two surgeries and especially as it gets to become like a really big grind and super boring and you know, the trust between athlete and their trainer and their rehab staff is important. And I think that trust is much more easily built when you know that they've, they understand you, they can speak the same language. And people talk about all the time about speaking the same language, but Bobby, if you have an injury, someone's coming to look at your groin and they're like, so did you did you win the ba- the baseball match today? And you're like, don't touch me. <laughs> so I think that can be tough. Well, that's a, I think the big thing how you relate. Yeah, especially when when you're relating to an athlete, it's like they're they're competitive, and most of the time they want to know you know how long is this going to keep me out. Uh, that was my first question anytime I was anytime I felt hurt or I was you know went into the training room. So. That speaks volumes when you can speak from experience. Be like, look, if you're you got a you got a groin injury, like this is what it's going to do. You know, you'll probably get you back in three weeks, but you're going to hobble a little bit. Like it's going to be tough to run the bases. It's going to be tough to laterally move at your position. Whereas if you're just a primary care doctor and you don't see hernias or work hernias, it's like, look, you're going to be out of work from six to eight weeks, and you know we're going to put you on a rehab program where people aren't going to have to perform physical activity necessarily after they're they're fully healed just being able to speak the lingo with these kids and just say even if i throw out a word as simple as velo rather than saying how hard do you throw like what's your velo like sometimes that can make the world of a difference with some of these kids like hey whoa this guy gets it like he he understands and uh, a lot of when i talk to the kids is sometimes i'll bring it up outright and just say look uh, I played baseball myself. Sometimes it's a different conversation where uh, I'll let them kind of pride. Everybody's different. You know, some of these kids, when you tell them that they tore their UCL, it's shell shock. This is the first time that they're hearing it. And Dan, I'm sure maybe the first time that you tore yours, you, you didn't really understand the gravity of the situation at first. But when, when you finally get that realization, it it can hit you like a ton of bricks. Yeah. And I still have a, I mean, I have I think all of us have these like photographic memories of like where you were at a, at a point in time. And I, I don't know that it was the exact moment that I got the diagnosis, but I, I have this little flashball memory of me being in our sort of like back area. It's like behind the dugout, kind of like where, you know, where teams always store their, they like their shed and they have their like batting cage and they kind of keep their junk outside the field. Like we didn't have, we had a, a nice enough facility for a small division one, but we weren't like, you know, big stadium. So, you know, that's how it goes. There's a shed, there's just junk around. I just remember I was walking from that area towards the field. And for whatever reason, that moment it hit me. And I was like, I'm, I'm one of those people that you like read about in those articles about getting Tommy John. Like I'm, I'm one of those now. And it was just weird because you always think, I think there's all these crises that we all 
hear happen to other people and certainly not only sports related, but you always hear about, you know, some other tragedy happening elsewhere in the world, all these terrible things. And then one day it's you and you're always just like, it's me. And that's weird. And it's, it's hard to come to terms with. Yeah, sometimes what we're actually, Dr. Mon and I are studying the psychological impact of UCL injuries right now. And we're, what we're seeing is that it goes beyond just, oh my God, I, I tore my ligament. It is, these kids are having nightmares about it. They're getting sweaty palms. They're not able to fully cope with it on some level. And it's, it's, un, it's unfortunate for these kids and especially for the younger kids who maybe are unsure of their future. It's a tough thing. Yeah. Um, so what are you guys, uh, what are you guys finding more about the psychological aspect and what do you guys tend to do to help kids through that? I mean, you said speaking the lingo is important, but what else is in your sort of repertoire? Yeah. So our toolbox, we have sports psychologists that I can text right away. If we have a kid that we're a little bit more concerned about, we have other healthcare professionals that can kind of help us formulate what is best for each athlete. And it's not a cookie cutter thing. Every kid or every person that every athlete that gets injured, you got to kind of treat them with kid gloves because you don't know what is going on. Uh, upstairs. It can be, it, for me, it, and I think this is one of the most powerful things that uh, people talk about in healthcare. I could do this a hundred times a week, but for you, this is your first time. Yeah. So I have to be cognizant that because I give this diagnosis multiple times throughout the week, I have to understand that this is your first time hearing it. And unfortunately, we have kids that have to hear it a second and unfortunately third time. Yeah. Um, and for everyone out there, uh, Frank is, is an author. He's um, uh, written a book about Tommy John surgery, which helps just people understand the process, which I think is really important. Um, and I have a question here for Bobby. So Bobby, when you were recovering from your groin, what were some of the things you did to, uh, I, th I think one of the things, and there's a bunch of misconceptions I want to bust today. And one of them is that players are constantly injured and they're constantly hurting. And we usually don't see a lot of that stuff. So like you played on your hurt groin for a little bit. And of course you were like really hurt. Like I remember this, but, um, so Bobby, I want to hear a little bit about your experiences in continuing to play through all the little nagging injuries. And then, and Frank, I'd like to hear from you about what some of the big league guys are going through on a daily basis that maybe the public isn't really aware of. Yeah, those day, the day-to-day, -day, the nagging injuries, the, you know, you hurt your thumb, like the fatty part of your hand, or you got jammed, or, you know, your knees bothering you, or like Frank said, you got, maybe he, he tore his quad, but, you know, maybe you, you just tweaked it running down the first base. I mean, those are, you learn to live with those, you learn to play with those, those become, you know, 85% becomes your new 100% um, as a baseball player, but the groin was a totally different animal. I mean, I was... I was noticeably limping as a runner. Um, and I was, it, when I played, I was a speed guy. Like I could, i moved well pretty, you know, quickly down the line, quick on the, quick in the field. So hampering that, like that altered my whole game. Um, and the lateral movement, the, you know, in independent ball, you're not allowed to get hurt. And that's, <laughs> that's not a, I don't think that's a over exaggeration. Like if you, if you're hurt, you basically go home. 
They're not going to yeah. keep you on the payroll. They're not going to keep you there to rehab. You know, I think I was kept there to rehab personally because uh, if I would have went home and gotten a second opinion to get surgery, they would have had to pay for it. Um, so not, not every situation is like that. But if you get hurt, you're pretty much, that's it. Like you get, you're done and you go home. Um, not saying you're never going to play again. You're just going to do everything on your own. So, you know, playing hurt and playing injured, you know, is are two different things, I think. Um, but that, that was, I'm talking on both sides of my mouth, but that's, that was definitely an injury. Like I needed, I needed someone to, to take me off the field and say, you know, this is going to doing more harm than good. And, you know, when you're a, when you're a professional, you probably need that a little bit more than when you're a, maybe a younger guy, an amateur where parents and coaches are looking out for you and your best interest. And, uh, it's not a career. It's, it's a game still. So it, it's tough. It's tough to play when you've got something that, that focused and it's, it's taking a lot of your headspace. You know, you're thinking about it constantly, like one wrong move and it's going to totally wipe you out. Whereas these jam thumbs, you know, the, the, you know, the bumps and bruises of the baseball season, everybody goes through that, you know, you hear it all the time, but that's, it's, it's a lot easier to pay, play through a lot of that stuff. Yeah. And Frank, that's, that's one of the things that I'm interested to hear your perspective, because again, like a lot of players, you are just talking about how it's their first, first time for many, many athletes that you see, and they don't know what's okay to play through and like what they're going to push through, which isn't why it's important for you having a baseball background. Like you can say, Hey, this is probably going to hurt a little bit. This is okay. This is not. Um, so what are some of those nagging injuries? Where do you draw the line with guys? How do you help them or guys and girls? How do you help them understand that whole process of what you can play through, what you can and, and all that? Yeah. So everybody's different, of course. And, uh, to, to Bobby's point about playing with a jammed thumb, I remember I got crossed up with one of our guys, and I think it was – I can't remember what the situation was, but I remember I got crossed up, and I jam my thumb. I go into my athletic trainer, and I show him my thumbs, and he goes, let me see. So I give him both, and uh, he goes, you know what your problem is? I said, what's that? He goes, you got some ugly thumbs, man. And I was like, well, that doesn't really help me out. <laughs> what can I do to, to make sure that this thing, whatever it is, just doesn't get worse? And that's where we put some of the moldable plaster around my thumb that, you, you know, like the white stuff that you see kind of come yeah. around and hold. So I didn't have to worry too much about it. And I used that for the rest of my career. And even after I, I stopped playing collegiately, I, I'd play in men's leagues. And it was something that I still use just because you never know when somebody's going to miss a three and it look, have it look like a two, especially in men's leagues with the older guys that might not be able to see the best. So um, that, that was just one thing. But uh, for our guys, when we have any baseball player that comes in and says, hey, the inside part, the medial aspect of my elbow hurts. That for us is like a patient coming in and saying, I have chest pain. That is, yeah. all right, shut it down. We have to get this figured out because if we let you continue to play, what could have been a flexor strain now turns into Tommy John surgery. And that's where it can be, I'll use the term loosely, a little, a little reckless, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, we published some research, uh, I think last year or the year before that shows that flexor strains are a precursor to Tommy John surgery. So we have to kind of tease out what's going on to make sure that we're letting these guys, even if it's not the UCL, we still got to figure it out so it doesn't wind up for these kids losing a year. So, and uh, I'm sure you guys, as again, as Bobby said, uh, your 85% is your new 100%. And if you're able to get out there and compete, especially at the 
professional level, independent league level, you have to be able to do it. But at some point, where does the risk outweigh the reward? So if you're on a playoff push, that's a different story than if this is spring training, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I actually, my first Tommy John, I had a flexor strain early in the season. It was never, it wasn't diagnosed, but my form was cramping earlier and earlier with with each star. Like first couple starts, it was like seventh inning. It would start to kind of get tight. Like you're like, you just worked out and like your form's kind of like full of blood. And after that, it was like, you know, a little bit down the road, it was like third inning. And I'm like, this isn't good. Velocity's dropping. So same thing right there, like you said, and that is a big warning sign. And, and you hear you hear it even now, right? Like I think with this spring training, wasn't was it Chris Sale? We're like, hey, he's got a flexor strain. You're like, oh, well, that's not good. Like, I mean, and that seems like to be extremely common. I think every single year in the major leagues, and correct me if I'm wrong, there seems like there's one of those things where oh, it's just a flexor strain. Everyone just calm down, and then and like three weeks later, they're getting Tommy John. Yeah, that, that's the tough part, too, is the the rehab process. I mean, at, at the the higher you go, the more resources you have. Obviously, at the high school level, maybe you're lucky to have an athletic trainer, but that athletic trainer has to worry about baseball. You have to worry about varsity, JV, if you're lucky to, your school is lucky to have a freshman team. So they're spread so thin, and that's just one sport. Forget softball. Forget uh, lacrosse and then at the college level you have the spring season is the non-championship season if you go to a school that has football so football takes up even a lot of resources in the spring as well so uh, you, you'd think the higher you go and in most cases you have a dedicated athletic trainer but at the higher levels of collegiate play but it, there's only so much that you could do and guys look athletes have that drive. They want to compete. They don't want to sit on the bench, especially if they're a starter. They want to be able to go out there, show what they do, especially if they're draftable. If they're a junior in college and they know they have a shot, they're not going to want to let even something like a a groin injury where that can be extremely debilitating. Regardless of what side it is, you you need your hips for swinging a bat. If If you're an infielder, you need it. If you're a middle infielder, you need it to turn the double play. So there's so much that goes into it that uh, the resources if you have them you got to use them yeah absolutely so if you're just joining us we're here with frank alexander he's an athletic trainer works with uh, the new york yankees team doctor and their rehab team so a lot of awesome experiences um coming from him today uh if you're on twitter or on youtube we are i'm currently monitoring the uh, chat so i'm not texting during our, <laughs> our our talk here i'm responding to some of the the questions um, in the YouTube chat. So if you have something uh, you'd like to discuss, feel free to throw it in there. And thanks for being here. So, um, Bobby, I'm going to toss it back to you, sir, with your Chicago stars. Um, <laughs> did you, did you hear the news today about double tree cookies? We need to, we need yeah, to I, cover, we need to cover this. I didn't hear, but you sent it to me and I, I looked at it and, uh, I haven't stated a double tree in years, but I remember these cookies being out there and being like crack because you were, it's almost like people at the hotel only stayed there and hung out in the lobby and everyone just kind of like, oh, da, da. and then the cookies came out and there was like a mad rush for them. Like they knew they talked to the woman at the front. It's like three o'clock cookies come out, be here. And they show up and they bum rush and they grab all these cookies. So, I, you know, I, I think it said what they're, they're, uh, 
they're available. Like Double Tree finally let it out of the bag. Who makes these cookies? Probably somebody down in, you know, some some lab just engineering drug cookies. <laughs> I mean, I think they just had some old woman's recipe, um, Mrs. Double Tree. I don't know, but they are Mrs. incredible, Fields. Mrs. Mrs. Fields, maybe. But <laughs> they're amazing. Those cookies are like crack. They're so good. They're so good. And now they released. <laughs> they've released the. Um, so I tweeted it out on my Twitter today. So if you need the recipe, it's there. But they gave it out so that all of us stuck at home could have double tree cookies. This is the best thing that's happened, <laughs> I think, to America at least in the last month. I mean, that might <laughs> be an you, overstatement. Will you bake your own cookies? I will actually. That's actually phenomenal. I hadn't actually thought about that until just now. Like I was excited about like that this exists and I shared it with my family and, and on Twitter, but I hadn't actually thought about, I'm going to bake these cookies. But now that you mentioned this, I am. I'm going to get very obese in my, my apartment. We need to live stream that. <laughs> Cooking with Dan. There's a ba- baking show. I'm just sitting here whipping up, <laughs> whipping up cookies. <laughs> I mean, yeah. in, in a typical episode, I could, probably, I could probably start to finish make cookies. So maybe this in- is like episode 12. We'll see. Yeah, cooking, cooking with Dan and Bob. I'm, I'm in, I'm in for that. Yeah, but I mean, there's a little bit of a point to that, and that is all those little creature comforts. They just make people happy, right? Just like the little things. And when you don't do that stuff, it also really sometimes can piss people off or just. So, like Frank, in your practice, are there any of those little things that you do just to like show that you care a little bit more that you can that just you feel like are important that help take care of people? Yeah, there's so many different things that you could do that comes to mind, like something as simple as uh, just personally talking to one of our athletes, physical therapists, where they need to know like, hey, this is coming from our doctor's office. Sometimes the kids forget, uh, even the adults, they forget what to relay to their PT in the rehab setting. But uh, just making sure that it's that hands-on kind of contact that patients are more comfortable knowing like, Hey, this guy knows what he's talking about. Now he needs to talk to the other guy that knows what they're talking about. So when it's a, it's a professional to professional communication on our end, it's always more helpful. Like there are some times where you get a parent that says, Oh, I'm going to relay it in this way. And sometimes it's a little bit more like, let this be a professional to professional conversation just because it, if it's coming from, mommy rather than the doctor's office you don't know how that information can be received yeah for sure um so frank we got a question from actually i think one of your buddies patrick over on youtube patrick uh <laughs> um he's he's listening but he says do you think this time off due to covid19 will lead to increase in overuse injuries when the quarantine lifts that's a really good question. You know, uh, I was talking to our nurse practitioner, Fiona Nugent, the other day about this. And uh, I said, this is either there's going to be two ends of the spectrum. Right now, we, have, we haven't heard much of the little leaguer's elbow. We haven't heard much of the little yeah. leaguer's shoulder kids just because there's no leagues that are playing right now. But yeah. what's going to happen is as soon as the floodgates open and these kids are back on the, on the field, they're half hour throwing session is now going to turn into an hour and a half because they've missed it. And we got to just make sure that the the parents and the coaches out there are being more responsible with these kids. Like, Hey, you know what? I understand that you've been cooped up in your house for the last three, four, six weeks, but on the same, on the other side of that coin, we got to make sure that we're not just letting them off to the races because that's where we will see a huge jump in those little leaguer injuries, the little leaguer's elbow, the apophysitis stuff. 
Yeah, and it's uh, so if you're out there um, listening, I do have a, a throwing program on my YouTube channel. It's free, and I have a video that walks you through it. And I'm not here plugging myself, but it's free. So if you don't have anything to follow, and you're a parent, and you're like, "What do I do with my my pitcher?" My program is on there, and it's it gives you instructions to kind of start. You get into the second week, then you can throttle up and throttle down because right now this is and this is a really complicated time for throwing. And um, and Frank, I'm interested in your thoughts on this as well, but you don't know when opening day is like no one does. So for all the major leaguers who are at home, like hitting balls in their apartment, like into a net and pitchers are throwing, it's, it's really tough to figure out what you're doing and just trying to have this ramp up process. So really the best you can probably do right now is you kind of throttle up and then it's like, okay, all right, we're going to throttle back down for a little bit. And then you start to throttle back up. So you're always maybe within a, a two week period of being ready and I think coaches have to be smart when we finally get like the go ahead to not just like sprint out to the field. And then five days later, you're all throwing 140 pitches. So that's tough. Um, so if you do need guidance, uh, I'll put the link somewhere in the, in the show description when we're done, but find a, find a program from someone and try to be relatively regimented and keep your, your throw and your pitch counts up. You don't want to go down to nothing and then shoot back up just to, to pitching when the season starts, you want to keep some kind of, arm conditioning going and keep up with your arm care routine. I mean, what have you been recommending Frank to your, to your guys? Yeah, definitely trying to stay in some kind of shape and there's two sides of that kind of argument too. And we'll talk about off season throwing in a second, but marathoners, they don't just stop running. They just dial down their training. Obviously they're not running 20 miles every week. But baseball players need to keep their arm conditioned, whether it's your arm care, the thrower's 10 exercises, your band work, whatever you do to keep your arm healthy. And then you want to have some lower level of throwing. So submaximal effort, maybe you're just going, going out there and playing catch at 50% at 60 feet because you just want to keep some kind of shape there. You don't have to go out and long toss 300 feet just because you feel like hucking a ball that far, you know? So you got to keep some kind of conditioning there, but you don't want to, uh, I like your analogy of being a, in a two week period where any time, at any point you could be two weeks away from opening day ready, not mid season ready. We want to be opening day ready. And that's mm-hmm. a lot of what we talk about with our athletes in the Northeast. And uh, jokingly every February when the kids start getting closer to to March, they're saying, Oh, I got to be ready for whatever that first Friday is in March because that's opening day. And okay. It's opening day. You're, you're doing scrimmages. You're not doing anything meaningful. Opening day isn't until probably right around this time, mid April. And you don't need to be mid season ready on April 10th. You got to be opening day ready on April 10th. So that's two of the big misperceptions that kids are, oh, I got to be ready. Like, no, you don't need to be throwing 90 pitches game one. You should be throwing maybe 45 at the most, depending upon where you're at in your your career and in your seasonal uh, ebb and flow of of how everything goes. So you could speak more of that about being being a pitcher, about where you want to be ready, but in terms of being conditioned, you got to be opening day ready, not mid-season ready at this point in time. Yeah. Right. And Bobby, Bobby, speak a little bit on that because we talked about this in another show briefly, but who like it, it's a broken system, at least for minor leaguers, right? Like they don't have the luxury of being opening day ready in, in spring training. Well, I was going to say, I was like, Frank, as a youth guy, I need my guys ready 120 pitches day one. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. We need these guys ready to go. Uh, you know, 
we did talk about this before, but you know, it's, it's always minor leaguers don't have the luxury of easing back into it. You know, you may not need to be a hundred pitch ready game one or day one when you show up back to spring training, but you need to be ready to go out and really shove. Um, you can't, you can't ease back into it. Uh, you know, my, my old, my old school way of baseball thinking, like for me, um, on the, on the youth side is I feel like a lot of the kids that I'm going to have coming back, um, you know, into the, into the fold, whether it's three weeks, four weeks, however long before we have baseball again, I feel like atrophy for as much as, uh, they don't have like developed muscles is going to be a problem because a lot of these kids aren't doing anything physical at all while they're, uh, while they're during this downtime. Whereas, you know, as a, as an adult, uh, that's working out or something, at least I'm staying in somewhat of physical shape. My arm might not be where it needs to be, but I'll be able to ramp it up a little bit quicker than say the, the, the 12 year old kids sitting in front of the screen playing a video game for 12 hours a day. Um, so I, you know, as, as a former player, I never stopped throwing. Uh, I always kind of how you said, you know, as a marathoner, I would ramp down, you know, I'm not going to be seven days a week, but at the same time, it's, I'm to Dan's point, I'm, you know, two weeks away from being a hundred percent ready to air it out. If I need to, if I need to show it off, you know, one throw to make a team type uh, situation, like I'm ready to go, you know, do you, do you see anything with, with kids that take that come in with injuries? And then is there any correlation when they, when you're talking to them on how much time they've had off from throwing uh, as opposed to maybe if they show up, you know, mid they felt it on a throw mid season. Um, I see a lot of kids when we first start up winter practices that probably haven't thrown for three, four months uh, go into the overuse. But at the same time, it's like that that's where I see the most rash of, uh, maybe not injuries, but kids that are hurt or cause I work with a lot of kids uh, more so than on the pro side. So a lot of uh, like the, the peaks and valleys of our office year, we see a ton in January and February. Cause that's when the college kids are going back. That's where you see the high school kids open their winter, their winter camps. So you see a nice little sharp increase there. And then as guys get conditioned, they kind of fade off in April and May, but you still see a good amount of kids that are getting hurt. Then the middle of the season and using the big league season as the season, uh, then in like June, July, August, uh, maybe a, a little bit of a plateau, but then towards the end of the season where showcase season hits for the high school and college kids, the, uh, August and September, you see another sharp increase in these kids that are getting hurt because now they're fatigued. So in the beginning, when you're deconditioned at the end, when you're fatigued in the middle, you, you just get uh, ups and downs and it just depends. And then, uh, then probably around September, October, you see it, anywhere from like August to October, you start to see it kind of on the rise again. And that's just because of the seasonal fatigue. A lot of the questions that we ask kids in the office, and it doesn't matter if you're, again, a little leaguer or a major leaguer, one of the questionnaires we give them, we ask them, what, what is your level of game day fatigue? So how tired are you on a scale of one to 10, just in your 
five, six, seven inning outing? And then what is the seasonal fatigue for you as well? So how tired are you at the end of the season? Do you need to shut down for a complete month or do you need to shut down for maybe two to, to three weeks and then start again that marathon training where it's low level and low duration? Yeah, and and that's I want to double back to that later because we we talked about that a little bit with uh, Win Pelzer on Monday's episode about how pro guys in August you just plop down the training room and nothing's wrong but you're just like my bones are tired like everything's <laughs> tired my legs are just tired and like everything doesn't work so good anymore but Frank I want to I want to switch gears a little bit into into female athletes for a bit because they definitely have some different needs uh, compared to the baseball guys. So for all the softball parents and softball coaches and softball players out there, what are some of the common throwing issues you see with shoulders? Cause you know, we've seen a lot of them back in my Academy, you know, girls have more um, congenital laxity. They're just, they need more strength training to keep their shoulders stable. And I think a lot of problems stem from that, but what do you guys, what, what injuries do you typically see on the softball side? Same exact thing that you're seeing with the shoulder, call it instability. It's not uh, what we call a Frank Labrum tear, where in uh, baseball players, it doesn't matter, excuse me, at what level you see uh, the labrum start to make these adaptive changes. It's the same thing in softball players. The labrum, which is the lining tissue of the ball and socket joint, the, the socket, the glenoid, so the labrum, well, it's what allows us as overhead athletes to get far back in the cocking position or a layback position. So it, it stretches, it can tear, but that's what allows us to throw hard. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to have your labrum fixed. It, what, it's what allows you to throw 90 plus miles an hour as a baseball player, you know, so, or even as a softball player making a hard throw from third to first. So these are what we call adaptive labral changes. So it, your body just adapted so that you're able to throw the ball harder. It doesn't necessarily, like I said, mean that you need to have shoulder surgery. Again, every situation is different. But if you have a labrum tear and you don't have shoulder pain and you got an MRI that shows you have a labrum tear, there's no need to hit the panic button. And that's yeah. a lot of what we're seeing where some, some of these kids, they have shoulder pain here and it's really biceps tendinitis rather than a, a labrum tear and there are some non there are some doctors that are don't take care of a large number of baseball players that are ready to operate on these kids without real shoulder instability and for a baseball or softball player that could end their career which would be devastating for them on the other side, looking at the elbow, we see a ton of ulnar neuritis, which is where you get pinky and ring finger numbness and tingling. A uh, lot, of, lot of that in softball pitchers as well. Okay. I mean, one of the questions I get a lot on the web, and I avoid it like the plague because I'm not a doctor <laughs> and I try to stay in my lane, but a lot of kids and, and parents will email me and say, hey, you know, we have this pain thing going on. What do you think? And I'll give general advice. Most of the time I'm, I'm saying, hey, that seems bad enough where you should probably go see a doctor. Like that's usually my advice. But a lot of these players, they don't know what, what pain is and what, like we said before, like injured versus hurt. Um, mm -hmm. And they also don't really have a regimen going. So most players, and this is normal, like I didn't either as a kid, most players don't have an arm care routine until they're hurt which again is typical because typically you're not your first bout with arm pain is not going to be surgery. It's just going to be like my shoulder feels terrible or I can't pitch for a week or I have little ears elbow and I'm down. Now maybe is the time where they'll listen to you say, Hey, you know, you probably need to put more time into your 
your preparation. Like now that you're having problems, maybe you throw hard enough where you can actually really cause some problems. So you maybe need to start devoting 20 minutes a week. Um, so specifically on the softball side, do you feel like the softball community is doing enough as far as educating girls about throwing injuries and pitching injuries compared to the baseball side? I think that's, uh, uh, it's tough to really get a good feel for it because there's two schools to every thought process. There's the parents that we see that are ready to throw their softball pitcher out there every day and have her throw 120 pitches. And then there's the other side that says, hey, we're seeing what's going on in the baseball world with elbow and shoulder and overuse injuries in general. We want to stay away from that. So uh, as much as there's... Uh, there's less of, call it the epidemic of Tommy John surgery in softball. There's still a lot of overuse injuries that these girls are getting that we kind of got to be on the forefront of. And it's always too little too late when they're coming into the office and then we have to shut them down where a lot of these preventative measures can already be taken. Um, I'm not as up to speed on pitch counts and how many days off they need between outings. But uh, when it, when it comes to it, there a lot of the injuries that we do see in the office can, can be avoided with maintenance programs and uh, maybe a little bit more of an adherence to a, a more stricter off day schedule. Bobby, you have, you have softball teams. So what's your experience been with injuries on the softball side versus the baseball side? Um, you know, on the softball side, just from the limited experience I do have, it's been, it's been much less, uh, typically there's only one or two girls on the team that do pitch to your point, you know, that they roll these girls out there every single, you know, every game they're going to, they're going to basically split the game between two girls, depending on the age level. Uh, so we don't, I don't see it as much necessarily, or I don't hear about it as much because there's just less girls throwing to that high of volume. Um, you know, a lot of just from this past season, the big, the big one I saw a few times was shoulder, uh, you know, not elbow as much for the girls, but the shoulder. And, you know, the, the one thing I, I, I wrote down to, to ask you was, and to Dan's point, I'm not a doctor. I don't want to give medical advice, but what's, can you describe to, to parents or to, to players good pain versus bad pain, essentially, because, you know, we have kids that come in with, you know, bicep pain, and that's muscle. And from my experience, I would describe it as kind of as good pain. You know, it's not something to worry about. Whereas if you have an elbow or something in the shoulder, I would describe me personally with as bad pain. Like that's not where you want to have pain, or that's not what you want to be feeling when you're throwing. Um, so can you describe that for, for people that may not have any idea on what, you know, what they should be listening for from their kids, essentially, or players. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, like both of you guys, just so your listeners are aware, I'm not a physician either. I'm an athletic trainer. So uh, some of what, when we talk to our athletes with any type of pain, I always have to differentiate because a lot of these kids, it's difficult for them to maybe articulate or even understand what the difference is between pain and soreness. So for me, is it sore like you just got a really good workout in or is it pain where you have to shut down completely? Is this something that you're able to kind of work through or is this something where you say, you know what, mom, dad, this isn't something that Advil and ice is going to take care of and we need to go see a doctor. So that's where you kind of have to differentiate. And uh, you guys are 
expertly saying like, Hey, 85, maybe your new a hundred, but what is it? Is it aches and pains or does it feel like this is, is it keeping you up at night? That That's a big thing. If pain is keeping you up at night, chances are it's a little bit more serious. You do need to get in and, and see somebody, whether it's a family friend who's a physical therapist or, or a sports physician. Yeah. And it can be really tough. I mean, one of the, uh, and I had, so I had two partial UCL tears. I had two full UCL tears that required Tommy John. So if you don't know my injury history, but one of the most painful summers of my life was my second to last season. And that was a season when I was not actually injured. Um, I had pretty significant elbow pain. It was my second season back from my second Tommy John. And about, you know, just as a reliever, I was pitching really well. So I had a really heavy workload. And there was a period of time where I think I pitched five out of seven days. And just my elbow did, was just unhappy after that. And it didn't recover because I was going to keep pitching and the season was going to keep going. And I got a I got two, I saw two different doctors about it because my pain was pretty significant. I mean, it was pretty significant and just like, you know, dagger in my elbow. And I was like, look, I've felt this before. Like, I mean, this seems like I probably need to maybe take time off. And they're like, look, I, I think you're okay. Like we think it's just tendonitis or whatever. Um, so if you want to keep pitching through it and I did, cause I, I, this is not a humble brag, but I made my second all-star team that year. And I, I didn't get to pitch in my first all-star game. My first all-star game, I was awaiting Tommy John surgery. So I was like, I'm going to pitch in this game. So give me what you need to give me. And they gave me um, Toradol, which is one of the most mm -hmm. powerful, you know, corticosteroids. <laughs> and so my point in this whole story is it's not easy to figure out what you can pitch through. I, I, was, I was like pretty sure that I was probably going to go out there one day and it was going to be my last day ever. Like it was going to be my third elbow blowing out. And that was going to be the end of my career. I pitched like that much of that season. And that's mentally taxing. It's not the way you want to do it. But at the same time, I had two doctors that I trusted both say, we think you're okay. We think if you can get through the pain, you'll be all right pitching. And I said, okay, sign me up. So again, my point is that was a pain, my, one of my most painful seasons. And I pitched like that forever that year till the end. And I wasn't injured. And so as a parent, it's real, it and as an athlete, it can be really confusing sometimes to figure out what's okay and what's not. And of course, I was 29 years old at that point. So I had a much better understanding of my body. Whereas if you're 13 and you have arm pain for the first time, you're like, oh my God, what's happening? I've never had this before. And it was the same way for me when I was 15 and I had my first UCL tear as a uh, sophomore in high school. When I, I was, I remember, I, I have another flashball memory of me bawling in the car after the game when I came out you know I we, the bus got home from that varsity game and I thought my career was over my elbow was throbbing like it hurt a lot and I didn't know what was going on and then to fast fast forward 15 more years and I have probably more pain and I'm just out there gritting through it you know so it's it, it can be really really tough so do you guys have anything specific or is it just you kind of try to feel through it and and try to have them open up to you as much as you can I mean how how do you how do you give advice when it's so kind of nebulous like that? that? That's one of the tougher conversations to have too, is because when they're coming into our office, sometimes it's too late. It's not they mo the majority of the time is they've passed the overuse injury and now we're talking about surgery. So yeah. that's difficult to kind of catch that too early. But for the parents and coaches that are seeing these kids every day, if you see a kid that just doesn't 
he loves the game or she loves the game. And now all of a sudden she's not as interested. Maybe there's something going on there and it could be because they're hurt or maybe it's something else that's going on. Uh, the parents have conversation with your kids. And that's actually part of why we wrote Tommy understanding Tommy John surgery and how to avoid it. Uh, Dr. Ahmad, myself, and actually his son, uh, Charlie wrote understanding Tommy John and our goal is to open up that dialogue with these kids and their parents and say, Hey, you know what? 50 pitches today felt like 150. It didn't just feel like some days, uh, Dan, you know, some days 50 pitches feels like 20 pitches. And then other days, 50 pitches could feel like you just pitched for the last three years straight, you know? Yeah. So uh, to have that dialogue with your son or your daughter is extremely important. Uh, and it can really help keep you out of a doctor's office, you know? So being able to, have a honest conversation and maybe it is just a little bit more of the, you know what, I'm just not feeling it today. Maybe a DH rather than be the starting pitcher. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a good point. Um, you know, just to jump in there, it's being on coming from as a pro guy, we'd be in the locker room a lot of times. And if you're, you don't want to go into the training room because trainers were going to err on the side of caution and any little thing was going to be, all right, put you on the, put you on the bench or hold you out. Um, you know, I struggle personally with it, with, you know, high school kids and younger when, you know, I always, we always tell the kids, you know, if you, if you're hurt, you say something, if you feel, you know, feel something, say something. And then, and then when they do say something, I don't, I don't necessarily question that they're uh, quote unquote soft, but I just don't know. And, yeah, yeah. and for me, it's, it's like, look, we've only been playing catch for five minutes. You've been doing this, you know, you know, what's the issue? Like, are you actually hurt? You know, I'm trying to, you, you try and be sympathetic because you, you have to err on the side of caution. But at some point it's like, you, you know, I'm trying to also be the guy like to t- toughen them up. Like, look, you have to learn how to, play catch or play with a little bit of, uh, you know, un- uneasiness, you know, get comfortable being uncomfortable. And mm-hmm. it's hard when you're on the, on the youth side, especially just in, just from what I do day to day, it's, you can't push the kid how I would push myself or how Dan would push himself to pitch through, you know, stabbing pain through his elbow because one, they don't know what that is. And two, if you push them into injury, I mean, you're opening yourself up to all kinds of liability. Uh, you know, whereas I can remember sitting in the pro locker room and I'm sure Dan's done it multiple times. Do I really go into that training room? Like I'm almost sneaking Advil mm-hmm. because I don't yeah, want him to sure. ask me what the problem is because I'm not going to be able to, you know, get off of that injury list. Like you used to always have, I remember having to sign in anytime you took something, you know, vitamin C or, you know, Pepto-Bismol, you had to <laughs> sign in on the, in the training room. And I, you, you know, we just go out and buy our own Advil or leave because I, I'm not going in there and letting him know what's wrong with me. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's tough. Uh, when you're dealing with adults, that's a completely different game. When you're talking about children, again, does go back to that. If that young athlete is gung ho about baseball or softball, and then all of a sudden you see them kind of, you know what, they're used to playing catch until the game is over. And now all of a sudden after, like you said, those five, 10 throws, they're, they're just not interested in it anymore. Why? Is they, are they actually hurt? Are they 
did their parents yell at them earlier in the day? What's going on? There has to be some kind of underlying issue as to why they're not their usual self. And that's the hard part too is, but as their coach, you get to see them probably every day and you know, these kids probably better than these kids know themselves. So you know, which kids you need to treat with kid gloves and you know, which kids you can treat as an adult and push them. There are uh, maturity level plays such a, a large role in that as well. Yeah. That's a tough, that's a tough one where you have to, you almost play uh Dan's got a psych degree. Don't you, Dan? Mm-hmm. You know, this place, you have to play psychologist with some of these kids because they, you know, a lot of there's, you know, we don't give kids enough credit for being like tough. You know, they don't want to disappoint the coach or their parents or, or anybody else. So at least the majority of kids, in my opinion, you know, they're tough. Kids are tough. They're a different kind of tough than maybe like my parents were tough, uh, but they're still not, they don't want to disappoint anybody. So you almost have to, you have to look at them without saying anything and kind of, deduce what's okay what do i have to do with this kid because he's clearly not right yeah yeah that, that's a big part like you said you got to kind of play psychologist and see what's going on there and uh to the point where you you have to push them but you gotta also know when when is enough enough and some days you might be able to push a kid like you're able to push yourself other days you, you might have to back off them. yeah yeah. So if you're just tuning in, uh, we are live here on Twitter and on YouTube. So, and the live chat seems to be working on both. So if you have a question for us, uh, for our guest, Frank Alexander, who is an athletic trainer, uh, with, uh, the rehab team of the New York Yankees team doctor. So if you have a question for us, definitely throw in the live chat and, uh, we'll, we'll get to you. So, um, and yeah, and so piggybacking on that, that topic, I had an, I had a situation my last season, uh, you know, last summer, and I, we were low on players. So from the get-go, we just had roster issues. Uh, we had a team quit. We had a team with a growth plate thing. So we started our season handicapped. Like we only had like 12 guys, which was way too few for a, a you know, a high-level travel team. I always, I want to have as many guys as I can just for the exact reason of not overusing arms. And so I was explicitly clear with my team. I'm like, look, we cannot afford to lose anyone. You need to let me know if you have anything going on. Like this is early. We need everyone to be here at the end and so naturally you know what happens kid who had a <laughs> nagging injury first high school um a, a back thing and he he'd like had to take some time off it was pretty severe back pain um doesn't tell me really just wants to play because the you know start of the summer season and just really aggravates his back i couldn't tell that he was hurting i couldn't he did a good job masking it um, and of course, as a head coach, your head's on a swivel, like you're doing lots of different stuff. You can't be just like locked in to every player. You'll catch stuff over time, but you might not catch it in the first three games that a kid's just like maybe going 95% instead of hundred percent. Like sometimes you just can't tell. I mean, I was a good, I was a good imitator or, or I was good at pulling the wool over my own coach, coach's eyes. Like I, you couldn't tell when I was hurting, not really. So anyway, he does this. And then he finally, his dad messages me and says, Hey, he's really hurt he's really hurting. I don't think he can play. And I know he didn't tell you, but he needs to blah, blah, blah. We lost him for the whole season. And I reamed him out for it because that was the exact scenario that we didn't want to have. And it's like, look, I get that you guys are trying to be tough. It's admirable to be, to try to be tough, but you're going to cost us your whole season. We need you to help us. And if you're selfish about trying to be tough, like there's a time to be tough and there's a time not to. And the thing with amateur sports, the seasons are so short. I mean, if you get, and I knew this having happened to me twice, I lost two seasons in college. 
Um, if you have an injury in the fourth week of your college softball season, college baseball season, your season's over. I mean, four weeks down and then four weeks of, of ramping back up, like you're done. Same thing with summer ball. I mean, like if you have a serious thing that requires some serious rest, you're, you're pretty much done. So you have to be like, to your point, Frank, you have to be really cautious early where if you, Hey, my elbow's a little itchy. doesn't really hurt, but it's like, I'm starting to feel something you need to back off then and like get it taken care of. Now maybe it's a one or two week thing rather than you let it go for another week. And now your whole season's done. Right. Yeah. And that's what we keep talking about this 85% being your new a hundred percent. There are things that, uh, and you guys have said, Hey, by the end of the season, your bones are achy. It's just a long grind of a season. So you got to understand like you might not for the college level guys and and beyond uh, even the more call them the more quote-unquote elite high school kids where you're grinding all summer long you're gonna have aches and pains maybe you get cleated if you're a shortstop and somebody slides hard in a second base or something like that bumps and bruises stuff like that can can you play through it but the injuries that you got to avoid are the ones that that can be prevented and those are the overuse injuries making sure that even over the course of a long season you do get that rest even for something that's not as uh, as common in baseball like a back injury we we do see them but it's not an everyday occurrence you know you obviously you see more shoulder elbow you see the hamstrings and the quad pull stuff like that but uh, for the back injuries you a lot of this stuff with good training good rest time and rest isn't taking winter off rest is making sure you're getting enough sleep making sure you get enough rest between your outings if you're a pitcher uh, for catchers make sure you dh instead of you're, you're instead of catching six days in a row mix in a day where you're not beating up your knees because for you the season can be a grind yeah absolutely um bobby i want to talk this to you before i uh ask frank but what are some of the qualities because frank like you said you see athletes from kids all the way up to you know the new york yankees and so i'm curious what are some of the qualities you see in the highest level athletes that you see because i'm sure there's a lot of unifying qualities like what makes a big leaguer a big leaguer you know, a, a D1 female athlete, a D1 female athlete, like there's differences, right? So Bobby, I'll, but I'll throw that to you first. What do you, what do you tend to see with the best performers of different sports as unifying qualities? I think the biggest one I see is, is how meticulous they approach practice. Uh, you know, cause we see them a lot. We, we train a lot. We do a lot of off season workouts you know, the guys that show up and, t- and really focus and take it as, as a practice as opposed to a social uh, event, those kids are always the best ones. And, you know, it's, that goes from seven years old to all the way through college, the kids that, that I see, you know, on a consistent basis. Those kids really want to be there. They really have. They want to be better. They want, I guess the, the word I keep using is they want it. They want to do well and they want to, whether they're trying to do well for themselves, for the coach, for the, for their parents, like they really want to do well. And uh, I can remember from my playing days, like that's, you really want to succeed. You want to be better. Um, you know, I, I think it's a little bit different uh, being a player, you know, observing guys that were good that I played with you know, the want aspect wasn't necessarily a, you know, cause we weren't being told we had to be there. Like you, obviously it was a career choice, 
But for the younger guys, it was definitely a, it's definitely a want it's, and at all levels, you know, they're the, even the guys that, because we ask them about school and stuff, like what their grades are like and how they're doing in school, you know, there's sometimes there's a correlation, but not always. And you see the guys that really want to get better at sports, like their parents are also saying, yeah, he got his homework done today. Even if he's not getting straight A's, like, cause he wanted to, he wanted to come to practice and he wanted to be there. You know, it's, it's almost like that, uh, that apple that they have to dangle in front of some kids to get them to do better in school. Cause school doesn't necessarily interest them. They want to do good and they want to be at the athletic field. Uh, that's the big thing. I'm sure it's a little bit different, you know, when you're like Frank dealing with high level athletes, uh, you know, want is a, is a word I'm using, but you know, desire something, something along those lines. So Frank, what do you see? I mean, it can be mental, it can be physical, anything. Yeah. In times, uh, as we're sitting in the middle of a quarantine, this is the time where if you want to get to that next level, the guys that will, they're the ones that are busting their rear ends right now. They're not sitting on the couch. They're not playing Xbox. They're not playing PlayStation. And if they are, it's at a significantly decreased level than the kids that are just saying, oh, this is something that I want. There's dreamers and there's doers. The doers will get there and on their work ethic. The, and like I said, using a quarantine as an example, they're not just sitting on their couch. Maybe they're not taking 100 ground balls today, but maybe they'll take 25 today this morning. Maybe they'll take another 25 this afternoon. Maybe they'll make sure that their nutrition is on point right now because how easy is it? Uh, maybe not for this generation, but for our generation, I, I'd love to be sitting on the couch eating a box of Twinkies right now. You know, So for something like that, making sure that Every facet of your game is as dialed in as you can. Do it now. Now is the perfect time. Don't sit back and say, oh, uh, you don't want to be the guy that that's comes two years from now and said, oh, I had a shot at, at getting drafted in 2020. When the reality is you had a shot being drafted, but you didn't do anything about it. So don't, uh, everybody uses the phrase, don't talk about it, be about it. And uh, for guys that are rehabbing, this is the time that you can crush it and be ready for this upcoming season too, because everybody shut down, not just, not just the guys that are playing. And uh, my, my heart breaks for the high school and college seniors that aren't able to end their career the way they want to, but everybody steps off the field for the last time, not knowing that it's their last time stepping off. And, uh, so that I feel so bad for those kids, but uh, for the guys that have a future, get out there and work hard. And that's what's going to take you to the next level. These guys, uh, even if they're home, I'm sure everybody's seen the videos of Aroldis Chapman working out mm -hmm. uh, with his boxing gloves. Uh, these guys are, are nonstop at the highest levels. And even Trevor Bauer organize, organizing a, a wiffle ball tournament out in Arizona a couple weeks ago. These guys are competitors. What drives them? What fuels them? So being able to hone those qualities is extremely important. Yeah. And, uh, an anecdote I have just, sorry to cut you off, Dan. Um, you know, I've got a kid and this is, you know, indicative of how competitive he is and how hard he works. I basically sent a challenge out to all of our juniors in high school who may not have a season this year. And I said, look, put together, you know, here's a template for your recruiting, uh, put together this email, pick out three to five schools a day and just email. And this kid, like clockwork, has been emailing school, eight to 10 schools, 
blind copying me on the emails every single day. I mean, he's probably sent out a yeah. hundred emails in the last week and a half. And, he, and if we've got, you know, let's say 30 players at that level, I, we've only got two or three that are doing that. And I could have picked those, those three guys before we even started. I mean, he is absolutely on top of it. The kid want, you know, he's, he's showing the initiative and he want you know, it's not like going outside. I mean, he's essentially sitting in front of his computer doing stuff to get himself to a level that he wants to get to. And you just don't see that with everybody. And it's, you know, like, like I said, I could, I could have picked him out the first guy out of the hat. Who's going to be the one that gets the, the, the most out of this, you know, terrible quarantine time. And I would have said it's this player, no doubt. Yeah, and so Frank, I'm also curious. Um, so talk about the Yankees a little bit, and talk about some of the, the big league guys. So I'm sure there's a lot of examples um, of players who they just do things that others can't, and you just kind of go, "Wow!" Like as a as a you know rehab specialist, you go, "Wow!" Like what he can do or what she can do is very different. You know, it's hard to single out specific specific guys and i'm just going to speak generalities of big leaguers just because there's something about big leaguers that that's why they got to where they are it is uh, some of the stuff i mean and even stepping away from baseball for a second everybody knows the story about kobe bryant taking free throws at two three o'clock in the morning and just putting in that extra work that those are qualities that you, you can't teach you have to be able to want that kind of stuff at the big league level these guys uh, granted uh, we're seeing players that are much bigger and stronger than they have been in past generations i mean you look a guy like either judge or stan they're just specimens these guys are, are big and but when you go back to our parents generation they had mickey mantle and that guy was a beast of his generation as well so uh I just think the physicality is one thing that everybody can marvel at, but it it really comes down to the work ethic of these players. And it's across the board at every professional level, whether it's indie ball, minor league, minor leagues, major leagues, there's a reason why you guys got to the level that you're at. And it's not only just the hard work, it's the dedication to your craft and becoming a, a skilled expert at what you're doing and kind of understanding that, hey, this isn't just a dream anymore. This is what could be my reality. And how does that carry over to, to, to rehab? So I'll, I'll share another quick anecdote. I got into it with a player this summer who was hurt. It's actually the same player. Um, and I told him and, and two other kids who were sitting out for injuries that you guys, when you show up, you still have a job to do. Everyone else is taking BP. Everyone else is playing catch. Everyone else is going through their warm-up routine. You have a warm-up routine as well, which is you do your rehab, you find a spot by yourself, you do it and you do it well. And that's what you do. And then you're supportive and encouraging of the rest of the team. So how how do you see or what differences do you see in from athlete to athlete and how bad they actually want to get healthy and how does their routine and their discipline play into their ability to get healthy again so before working with dr Ahmad and columbia I worked at a high school and I also worked at the college level. And at the college level, I worked at, at, it was a D2 school, uh, Pace University. And the players that were rehabbing in that setting, the guys that took it serious were the guys that had a shot, not only because of their talent, but because of their work, work ethic as well. So these guys 
took everything in their daily life, their athletic skills, their drive, their hard work, and they put it into their rehab because they hated, they loathed sitting on the bench. They did not want to do it. They wanted to be on the field, whether they were a pitcher, whether it was an outfielder. That's what got some of these guys to get to that next level. And at the professional level, it's the same thing. Guys, and again, top to bottom, when I say professional level, I'm talking about indie ball, I'm talking about the minor leagues, I'm talking about the professional, the major leagues. These guys, nobody wants to sit on the bench and you could be Wally Pipped at any day. Nobody knows when that day is going to come. And if you just want a day off, <laughs> that could be the day that you say, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go half throttle today. That could be the day that you're Wally Pip, you know? And, and that's the, the tough part about all of it is, and uh, uh, talking to some of the guys, uh, I'm talking to a number of players that had Tommy John last season and now, uh, this year, uh, they're on their free agents and they're just looking for a shot. And with the season delayed, they're working harder now than, it, and it's, everything's building up. They're nearing the end of their rehab progression. They're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. And now is where they're trying to step it up into that next level. And I actually have to pull the reins on them a little bit like, Hey, you're feeling good. We got to keep you feeling good because as soon as that season hits, whenever it starts, whether it's May, June, July, you're going to be ready, but you also have to build in a little bit of downtime now because you're going to hit the, the ground running. So putting everything that got you to those levels into your rehab, these guys don't do anything 50%. Yeah. Bobby, Frank. Um, talk, talk more about, sorry, let me ask your question, then I'll get back to it. No, I was going to say, do you see guys, um, that were kind of, that were on the, you know, getting back to healthy, looking at this downtime as almost a blessing in disguise where they can, you know, when everything does start back up, they're going to be on the same playing field, you know, so to speak, uh, health wise as everybody else, where maybe if coming into spring training, you know, February 10th, they weren't going to be, you know, especially pitchers. I don't know if you, I don't know if you have anybody specifically that's coming back from an arm injury that was probably going to have to ease back into the February, March, April that might now June one be on the same, you know, same timeline as, you know, pick, you know, whatever healthy pitcher you guys have, you know, that's going to get, he's going to get a chance to compete for a spot as opposed to waiting his turn because everyone already has their spots uh, essentially with the big league club or the minor league teams. Uh, you see any guys that are, that kind of see this as a, as a blessing or that have, you know, voiced that to you? Uh, there, there's a bunch of guys and, and this guy that I'm talking about who had surgery last year and then he wasn't going to be ready until June. Now he's seeing, uh, he, I have to pull the reins on him a little bit because the ball is coming out of his hand beautifully. His, his slider's just starting to turn the corner. He's chomping at the bit. He's like, Frank, I am ready for June one or whenever he, he's asking me, when can he get in front of teams and scouts to make sure that he, he has a team when baseball resumes. And uh, I'm getting to a point now where it's hard for me to pull the reins on him because he's looking that good. And he's, uh, He's about a month away now from hitting the one-year anniversary of his surgery. So when and this is the conundrum of Tommy John surgery and the rehab is where you have a year to get ready. You have a year, it's a year recovery, 
but for guys at the higher level, they have to prove them. They have to prove that they can get guys out at the minor league level before they get back to the major league level. So for them, that's why you're seeing guys at the major leagues have that 14 to 16 month recovery. And it's not just, Hey, you had surgery June 1st of 2019, June 1st of 2020, you're on the mound again, regardless of being in a pandemic. Just the fact that you're, we have to build you back up as a pitcher. And a lot of my conversation with guys that are rehabbing from Tommy John surgery is look, the first day you throw, I'd rather you throw into a net because then you don't get the visual feedback of air mailing it over your partner's head or spiking it 10 feet in front of their, in front of them, you know? So, and then the same thing goes for the mound. When you graduate from the flat ground to the mound, your first day on the mound, your fastball is going to look like crap. You're not going to be able to locate. You're not going to be able to throw with the velocity or the intent that you want to. So right now what we're seeing is guys that are getting a little bit more length out of this uh, quarantine. Hopefully there's a lot of guys that I've been texting that are, and this is even for the college kids, they're excited to be able, if they're a spring athlete, they're keeping their, this year of eligibility, which is a huge bonus for them. But they're they're using this time to hone their craft again. So that's what sets guys. That's what can set a Division One kid aside from a Division Three kid. Yeah, and so I, I think one of the the interesting talking points you brought up is like that twelve month mark with pitchers coming back from Tommy John. And I had the same experience both times where yeah, I could throw my full velocity at like nine months. Like I was in it was nine the first one, like ten and a half the second one, but. The feel for breaking balls, like you said, his this guy's slider is like just now starting to do something. The ability to to be a pitcher takes a lot longer, and it, of course, it's different for everyone. Like Steven Strasburg was back on the mound, the majors at twelve months, but for most players, they feel like they can go do it, but it's hazardous because if you go to indie ball and you get signed at twelve months and you stink for three weeks, you're just done, and that might be the end of your career. Like you don't get more chances to like, you know, I'm going to keep going. Like, no, we, we're telling you go home like you weren't good enough. And so you have to be really cautious. It's, it's hard to hit the ground running because your command doesn't come back necessarily at 12 months, even though physically you might be fine. It's kind of like your car is ready, but the steering wheel is super loose. So you don't, it doesn't steer very well. <laughs> but if you drive it for another two months, the steering will fix itself on its own kind of. So like the command takes a lot longer. The feel for your braking ball comes back a lot longer. It takes a lot longer. Um, and just the bite on it. And it's hard to quantify those things, but it's like my curveball sucked for the first season after Tommy John. The next season, it was good. The next season, I even threw a little harder. The next season, my chain-up was better. The next season, my command was, was sharp again. And I think that's something that people don't take into account. Now, if you're a high schooler uh, or, God forbid, a you know, middle schooler, you're going to have more leeway because your command wasn't that good anyway. Your high school is not as demanding as pro ball. Like you can suck and still pitch right in college. You're going to be there for the amount of years that you're going to be there for the most part. Right. Um, but in pro ball, you're not sheltered like that, especially not an indie ball, especially not in the major leagues. Like if you're not ready for the major leagues and you can't get guys out, you go back down. If you're an indie ball, you can't get guys out. You just are gone. Um, and in the minor league still like the in, independent baseball is littered with guys who just didn't come back as well from Tommy John. Like you don't seem to see them. You, you don't see them as much, but there's a lot of major leaguers that we watched for years where you're like, Oh yeah, where'd that guy go? Oh, well he got surgery and just never came back. And then, Oh, where'd that guy go? Well, he's in the minor leagues and he's never going to make it back up because 
he pitched to a 3.7 in the big leagues, but now he's pitching to a 5.2 in the minor leagues and he's just never going to make it again. And there's, I had a lot of teammates who lost two miles per hour after Tommy John and they just couldn't pitch the same way. And they struggled early in their first time back and then they were gone and then they're never getting back in. So I, I, you know, this like people don't see this, but there is this like to, to quote Futurama, there's like an Island of broken robots (laughs) <laughs> and that's that's a lot of times independent ball where you just don't see them, but they they came back on paper for the rehab, but their career was they're off the tracks. That's a tough part. When we look at the scientific literature, when we say somebody made it back to play, and when we're looking at the recovery rates, the when we say that it's successful, uh, is that they made it back to the same level of play that they were at before they got hurt. So if you're a major leaguer, then we say that you had 100% success rate if we get you back to the major leagues. Now, again, we say if you, even if you throw one pitch in the major leagues and then you never pitch in the major leagues again, you made it back. So yeah. it, it's a success. It, it is. But you know what? For those guys, and their goal is to get back to that level. Again, anybody's goal is to, following TJ, is to get back to where they were at just to have another shot. And for, uh, I think, a lot of players, after putting in that hard work, everybody looked at uh, the pitcher from the Nationals last year. The guy had three um, three Tommy John surgeries, was finally called back up to the Nationals, and a, a huge celebration at, towards the end of the season last year for him. That's a long road. That, that just validates you coming back and saying, hey, you know what, undergoing surgery, not once, not twice, but three times. And Dan, I'm sure for you, having it twice, when you got back on the mound, it just said, you know what, this is worth it. You got to command a game again. You got to do what you feel is in your blood. You know, so Mm -hmm. for a lot of these guys, uh, unfortunately, there are guys that don't make it back. The the media does a really good job at making the success stories sexy. They don't talk about the 10 or so percent that don't make it back because unfortunately, where's the story in that? everybody's going to talk about, uh, I think it was Venters last year, the, the pitcher that I'm referring to from the Nationals, who did it. He had surgery three times. What is not appealing about that? You yeah. know, I mean, uh, I'm born and raised a Yankee fan. I, I think you can see Jabba over here. But <laughs> he, uh, uh, for me to know who uh, – that nobody gets that type of publicity if if you did it once. Or if you don't come back, nobody's saying, oh, let me go find Frank Alexander. He, he had Tommy John surgery and he didn't make it back. Let me go see what's running through his mind. You know? Yeah, yeah. Bobby, this is a Netflix documentary. You can make it. You can call it Elbow King. There can be all. <laughs> there can be what could. What will be the exotic animal? So there will be failed Tommy John guys. Like they'll, we'll make a farm or like a zoo for failed Tommy John guys. And then one hundred twenty-seven we'll, failed Tommy John guys <laughs> yeah. in a cage. <laughs> <laughs> and then we need some exotic animals too, just to appeal to a broader audience. You know, so what? You got they, football. Like, you got concussion guys. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need to start our own little commune, a little, little whatever. And uh, yeah, so you can be the rancher, Bobby. Good job. Yeah, Bob this Exotic. Is, this, is, this is Bob Exotic. This is all you've ever wanted. <laughs> this all is all you've this ever is my wanted. Dream. This is my dream to run a farm of injured, injured uh, athletes. Well, I think it's a good segue for you to eventually be the mayor of Chicago, which you're never going to do. Just admit it publicly. Admit it on air now that you're never going to be no, mayor of Chicago. Is, I've got... 
I've got as good a chance of being mayor of Chicago as I've ever had anything in my life. Frank, we need to talk I'm about already on the. We need to talk about Malort. Frank, do you know what Malort is? No. So Malort, Bobby, tell them what Malort is, and then I need to hear if you have like some sort of cool New York can, food. <laughs> you wearing a Malort shirt? Can you okay. See this Malort shirt I got on. Yeah. So Malort is like if you if you put hand sanitizer in a shot glass with <laughs> with sewer water and took a shot of it. It's a it's a Chicago alcohol, you know, a hard alcohol. I don't know, a liqueur. I don't know how you would. I honestly don't know how you would describe it. Um, but it's a Chicago thing. So, you know, it's made in Chicago. It's, you know, if you come to Chicago, you get a Chicago handshake. When you go to the bar, you get an old style and a shot of Malort. And nobody seems to like it except for myself. Dan, I'll send you a bottle. Frank, I will mail you a bottle of this Perfect. stuff. It's, it's like a Fernet, if you ever had Fernet. Uh, it's like, no, a, it's feeling. No it's, one wants any of these. Best way. Yes. Well, that's, that's what it's like. It's like a digest. It's, you know, like you take a, Grappa, you take something, you know, oh, a shot. Yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So it's like that, but but exponentially worse in <laughs> most people's eyes. Now yeah. I just got to try it just because of that. You have to. I sold it pretty well, I think. Well, well if you want to, <laughs> is that what's getting you to be mayor? Yeah, yeah. That's my. That's my. <laughs> that's that's how you know you're a true Chicago. And as if you if you genuinely like that, you have to be from Chicago because nobody on earth likes this stuff. Well, so so Frank, to tide you over until Bobby sends you a bottle. See if you have like some uh, some like vodka or something. Go out to your dumpster or your trash can, pour it in it, come back the next day and drain off that sweet liquid, and that's you've got them. You've got Malort. So, <laughs> oh, it's like make, Froggy make, and the make, Little Rascals ooh. with the boot. <laughs> yeah, well, New exactly. York, New yeah. York City, New York City. They put the garbage on the streets. So so sweep up, you know that that puddle of yes, like, that's garbage smart. water. That's smart. And bottle it. Perfect. Mm-hmm. I'll sell it the, to you guys out in Chicago then. Well, yeah, you get sell like it's sell like a it's like hotcakes out here. Yeah, you I was driving through Manhattan. Go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. I was driving through Manhattan, and speaking of those garbage mounds, I thought I saw a squirrel running out from from the heap. It Ugh. wasn't a squirrel; it was a rat, man. <laughs> <laughs> like a yeah, it's like look like the size of a cat. Yeah, exactly. Well, I've heard that, uh, <laughs> interestingly enough, I've heard that rats are surfacing more now because there's less garbage uh, just like on the streets because everyone's inside. Have you guys heard that? <laughs> I've read this like quick little news story. That they have to, like, out of Manhattan. They have to come out to like find more food, which is crazy. <laughs> so I don't know if corroborate that. I don't know, Frank, I don't know if you've, if you've had to go anywhere in the, you know, to if going to the office or if you're just strictly at home. Um, but I'm really enjoying this no traffic thing in Chicago. Yeah, it, it's crazy. Actually, uh, one of my cousins posted a picture of driving down the West Side Highway yesterday at like 830 in the morning. And there was like maybe one other car. Uh, my wife That's and awesome. I, we live out in the suburbs. So I haven't had to be in the into the city uh, in the last couple of weeks. But uh, the way that everything's going with healthcare now is everybody's getting kind of reassigned to different departments. Uh, There's orthopedic surgeons that are being sent to the emergency room. They're pulling in dermatologists. They're pulling people in who haven't uh, been in the emergency rooms in in years. So it's pretty crazy. Yeah. So um, do you see anything with the Yankees players that you've worked with? Do you see any sort of extra urgency, extra fear when they're hurt because of just how big the stage is in the Big Apple? 
Uh, that's a good question. Uh, I, again, talking about players uh, on, on the whole, they they all want to get back. And uh, I think as you get closer to October, that's where if they've been rehabbing, that's where the urgency kind of really. Uh, and again, this is anybody in a playoff situation Mm -hmm. Uh, even the guys at the college world series uh we took care of a kid from uh, a local kid but he goes to a big d1 school and uh they were in the college world series and he felt the urgency he had some again some ucl like symptoms but he felt it like they had a game coming up i think against like uh, another powerhouse like clemson and he's like i gotta be ready for this so anytime that a player is getting near the playoffs i think that there is a heightened sense of urgency especially because if you don't know when you're going to go back to the playoffs and then yeah. you want to play if this could be your one shot at, at winning and getting a ring you want to be a part of it as much as you can you don't want to be sitting on the bench saying oh what could have been yeah that's tough so one of the things that i think so we talk about the College World Series, and you'll see sometimes pitchers throwing 150 pitches, or they go, you know, really short rest and throw. I know Oregon State got a ton of criticism a couple of years back for arguably just overusing one of their best pitchers, right? And you see this in 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 the playoffs as well, where you know in the major league suddenly, like with the Cubs, they were a good example back uh, when they won the World Series. Like Rodas Chapman was clearly tired, just tired, right? He's only throwing 98. It's like Oh my God, what's wrong with him? But he was clearly, you know, fatigue looks different for everybody, right? Fatigue, you know, having been in the game, you could just tell Araldus was tired, not just in his like getting slightly shakier command, throwing more 96s and 97s than normal, but also the fact that he threw like 70% sliders. I think his last outing, he threw a lot of sliders. And that's starting when you start to know, like guys know that they can't get away with their normal fastball. They start to change what they do. They start Mm -hmm. to go to their off-speed stuff more. That's a really good telltale sign. Um, but how do you feel about the way uh, – and I'm certainly not asking you to comment on the Yankees or anything like that, but just in general, when we get to these playoff pushes, you don't really see players get injured from that, which I think is interesting. Like, I don't think we've ever seen a guy walk out of the World Series, like, blown out, you know, blowing out his arm. I know CC was hurt um, his last uh, go-around, but I don't think that was caused by any of that. But College World Series, whether – uh, or you know, major league playoffs guys are just like short rest, going extra pitch counts. Do you see that as as a big deal or or really not a big deal? That's a really interesting concept too with the guys that are throwing on short rest because we're using we're seeing in the day and age of an opener we're seeing a guy like last year I think Garrett Cole threw against the Yankees twice in four days or something like that in the ALCS if, if I remember. Mm-hmm. Um, which is pretty crazy because we're throwing a guy out there for the Rays are doing it every fifth or sixth day with, with an opener. So to have that concept of somebody come in and on short rest, relievers are used to it. Dan, I think you know that better than anybody else. For, for the starters, again, it goes into their conditioning and what are they doing in between their outings? Are there guys that maybe – I know whenever every off season we get 
somebody coming in and we talk to them about their what their off-season workout looks like. One of the other big questions we ask them is how many sports did you play in high school? And believe it or mm-hmm. not, I don't, I've yet to see somebody at the big league level that has said, hey, I only played baseball in high school. These are two, three sport athletes. So getting in that sport diversification as a young, uh, as a young athlete is super important. Uh, and actually uh, we did a study published earlier this year that that showed that athletes that were two and three sport athletes in high school had a lower chance of having a serious elbow or shoulder injury at the professional level so uh be, again uh, professional athletes they have the time they're not in school anymore if they are they're, they're able to do it on their own time well but, let's talk about that a little bit so is there you know obviously the causal link here could go two ways is it because they played multiple sports that they became major leaguers. And of course you were not claiming that because they, but it's a correlation. Lots of major leaguers played multiple sports, but also major leaguers, like you said, are different. Like they're physically different, especially you got, you have guys like John Carlos Stanton and, and, and Aaron judge walking into your office. Sometimes they're physically different than most people. Right. And you see that a lot. Like this guy is just an athlete that, you know, you get a D one program. They might have one guy who's, who's like that. So how do you, how do you feel about the causal link between playing multiple sports? Does one actually cause the other, or is it really just like, Hey, like Aaron judge is a great example. He was a stud, what basketball and football player, but it's also because he was just a stud athlete at all three of them. Naturally, he didn't become Aaron judge because he played high school basketball. Right. But there's also something in there that it helps develop athleticism. So where do you fall on the, on that issue of specialization and, and, and what multiple sports do for athletes? Uh, the multiple sports. So if you're, uh, I was a two sport athlete in high school. I played baseball and football. Obviously I, I elected to play baseball beyond high school. Uh, but the, in terms of injury prevention, we're using different muscles in different sports. So even if you were to use baseball and basketball, yeah, you can throw a basketball uh, halfway across the court and you're recruiting a different muscle pattern for throwing. It's not like you're throwing a five ounce baseball 90 feet across a court, you know? So Mm -hmm. for the different muscle recruitments, it helps with injury prevention. It's not going to be your fail safe. Like, Oh, if I played three sports in high school, would I ever need Tommy John surgery as a 26 year old professional baseball player? Nobody knows. That's just the the reality of it. But in terms of youth injury and overuse injury prevention, playing three sports, we're just get out of the uh, daily grind of playing baseball 365 days a year. Mix in if you don't want to play football, especially with the concussion issue. Go play, go play soccer. Go play hockey in the winter. Go play basketball in the winter time. Obviously, I'm five foot eight, so I wasn't playing basketball in the winter time, unfortunately. But uh, that was my off season. I, I played football in the fall, and uh, during the off season, I'd work out. And then during the su- spring and summer, it was baseball season for me. So having those different outlets, and it also kept me busy and out of trouble, which I'm sure my parents appreciated. Yeah. Bobby, what do you got on, on that? I mean, we've talked about this in little snippets in different places, but what do you got? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm all for the, the multi-sport guys, but the guys that are good at multiple sports are just the best athletes, in my opinion. You know, you're, if you're the best athlete at your high school, yeah, you could take three, three months off of baseball, come back and still be the best baseball player because you're just a better athlete. You're faster, you're stronger, you're more, more coordinated. Um, I think the training thing is interesting. And Dan, you ran a gym. Uh, you know, we've got kids that go to outside trainers that 
they're like, you know, they're doing some of the exercises they come in our weight room and they're, and they're baseball specific exercises. And what I always go back to is you're already doing baseball specific exercising because you practice so much, you know, do some other stuff, go do some bear crawls, do some, you know, the like stuff, unnatural movements, like strength movements. Um, you know, I brought it up of whatever episode ago, it's, it's, uh, these old timers, the, the guys that played back in the old days, the, the man strong, the man, the man strength that they developed from working in Just the Just go do some season, coal mining. You know? Yeah. Go well, swing a yeah. Axe. I mean, it, you know, swing a, swing a sledgehammer, you know, flip a tire, recruit. Kind of how Frank <laughs> said, you recruit different muscle groups in different sports. Well, you can kind of incorporate that in your, in your athletic training, um, you know, in the weight room. You know, it's maybe real world application, you know, as a, as a, from my own personal experience, like I, I pour concrete, you know, in the summers, you know, moving a wheelbarrow full of a hundred pounds of concrete over and over. And it's not reps I'm performing. It's well, the job requires this many wheelbarrows. So that's how many I'm going to do. And you come home and you don't realize what, how much physical work you did. And it's recruiting all different, like I'm not recruiting baseball muscles. I have no stress on my elbow or shoulders you know, it's legs and it's core stuff, but it's, it's the, you know, the, the kids that only play baseball, even when they go to their trainer, they're only training for baseball movements. So I feel like it's almost, they're, they're losing out on that total body strength, strengthening. Um, and that kind of transitions into a question, Frank, I'm going to ask you a very specific Yankees question. Uh, (laughs) you know, you got, in that locker room of freak athletes, you've got Stanton, Judge, and Chapman. And I'm looking at these three guys. Is who's the strongest in the weight room? If you if you can if you can speak to that. I mean, which one of those guys? Which one of those guys is at the mountaintop, or is there a different guy? I know Clint Frazier is a you know you always see Clint Frazier is a big dude, strong guy. You know, is there someone in the Yankees that is just like you? You watch him in the weight room and you wonder what the hell is made this guy made of. Yeah, you know, actually, I'm not in the weight room with them all that often, so I, I can't give you a really good answer. Oh. But I, I'm sorry, but uh, these guys, like you brought up, Clint Frazier, that dude's got some of the biggest legs. Uh, these guys, and when we talk about uh, just the physicality of, of being a baseball player and how important each segment of your kinetic chain is to your the demands of being baseball you got to have a good base underneath you and if your legs are are like toothpicks you're not going to last very long yeah absolutely get back Um, to me on that yeah i'll send a couple text messages after this and i'll let you know (laughs) well and i'm and i want to talk about this as well because i want to i want to double back to tommy john and talk about tommy john light quote unquote a little bit but um, (laughs) oh man we we talk about durability anecdotally in the baseball industry like oh look at that dude he's big he's big boy he's durable he's durable let's draft him high (laughs) but we don't like i hear the word durable and i think it's bs for the most part and yeah you need strong legs you need a foundation like there's like baseball players seem to have high butts right like there's a lot of qualities from one to the next as you get to the high levels but at the same time does this idea of durability actually exist like does having thicker legs prevent you from getting tommy john in any capacity is there anything that validates any of this like folk wisdom? The, in terms of having a, a bigger base underneath you in terms of leg strength, I would much rather see a kid go do a ton of squats than do drive line. 
driveline is sadly what gives us a lot of our business. A lot of the, and I'm not speaking, uh, weighted ball programs in general are, are what a lot of these kids are getting injured. And that's where we see that peak in January and February because they're coming in off and off season, especially at the college level. Guys might not take it as serious as others. And they're coming in deconditioned and their pitching coach says, here, here's an eight ounce weighted ball. Go throw this into that concrete wall over there. You're going to do it 15 times and for three sets. And that kid just came off eating Cheetos off his couch and is now throwing a heavy ball into a wall. That's the worst thing that you could do. So. Now, in terms of getting your, we'll talk about the kinetic chain. And I use this when I talk in a professional setting, or even if I'm talking to players and their parents, you use the term and pitching coaches use the term, you tow the rubber. You don't shoulder the rubber. We got to look at everything from your toes all the way to your fingertips in that entire throwing motion. We're not just talking about your legs. We got to talk about core. We got to make sure you're doing your throwers 10 and your shoulder exercises there. You can do your forearm stuff with the farmer's carries or weighted wrist flexion extension exercises. Um, but looking at the whole thing, it's going to make you a better athlete and not necessarily, uh, keep you injury or keep you durable, but it'll help in terms of making sure that your muscles, even if they do fatigue, you still have the strength to kind of get through even when you're nearing that, that end of that last straw that's going to break the camel's back. So the strength and endurance component of it all is so important. And that's why having that strength, if it's great to have it, you got to build in the endurance as well. And that's, what's going to carry you over the course of for a college kid who starts in January and then ends in August or September, just to get back into it in September 15th, when school ball starts up again uh, for the fall season, it's incredibly important to make sure that uh, when we talk about, excuse me, periodization of a weight training program, got to make sure that that is optimized and make sure that, okay, you can build in the off season and then we're going to dial it down and do your maintenance for the next block of time. And then you build a period blocks off of that as well. Yeah. And for those of you at home, not familiar with the term periodization, it just refers to planning out a program. And so like a typical, like linear periodization model would be, all right, in the first book, you know, a couple months of the off season, we're going to work on hypertrophy, which is just getting bigger muscles. Then we kind of shift to strength. So we're going to take some of that bigger muscle, that muscle that we built, and we're going to use heavier weights and lower repetitions to build strength. And then we're going to go to power, which is uh, heavy weights moved faster. And then you sort of go to explosiveness, which is more like a jump or a plyometric, where you're taking all that strength and size you build, and you're trying to make it as you can summon that strength as, as fast as you possibly can. That's sort of like a typical linear progression and the reps and the volume of, of uh, training you do shifts over time to make that happen. Um, of course, yet with younger athletes, you don't necessarily need to follow that every off season. Like for us in our Academy and this is kind of getting back to Bobby's question was we, we might be in the hypertrophy phase for an athlete who just needs to gain weight for multiple years for the most part. And we're going to change exercises. We're going to change volumes and rep ranges, but we're never going to do plyometrics with a 140 pound five foot 10 kid. Like we're, we're not, we're just not going to spend wasting his time making him more explosive when he has no strength or no force to apply to the ground or force to apply to the baseball. You know what I'm saying? So there's those little skinny wiry kids that can move quick. Like they may, they, they have a little bit of sprint speed, but there's just nothing behind their throw. There's nothing behind their swing. They just have no pop. They have no, none of that 
that force that you need when you're a bigger bodied kid. So, um, and so, yeah, I, Frank, I think your, your point is, is, is really valid. A lot of young athletes, the first thing that they need to do to stay more injury free is just have a good strength conditioning program because your body as a whole, like whole body training is good arm care to a point, right? I mean, at what, at what point would you say that starts to shift Frank where whole body strength and conditioning isn't quite enough to continue to prevent injuries optimally? You know, it, it's tough to put like a specific, like when think about it, like a throwing a curveball. everybody, I think when we were growing up, guys were saying when you could shave, you could throw a curveball. It, it wasn't a, a set point in time. So for these kids, I think uh, then there's so many kids that are serious about baseball at a younger age now than when compared to when we were growing up. These kids are getting serious and on three, probably four travel teams at 11, 12, 13 years old, where I think I played on two teams at 15, 16 years old. And it was, you had your spring season, which was either your little league or your school team. And then you had summer ball, which was your travel team. They're, they never, maybe they overlap for a week or two, but your school season always took precedent over your travel team because that's where the coaches and the scouts were, were coming out for you. So I think it's hard to put an exact timeline on it, but I think uh, when you start to specialize in a sport, which for me, I hope that every kid is a two-sport athlete until either their junior or senior year in high school, just because the younger you are, you're still maturing, you're still growing, uh, and you, you just need that diversification. So I think once you start to specialize in a sport, that's where you can start getting into a little bit more of that whole body training. For sure. Bobby, how has your quarantine been? I have a question for both of you. What is one thing you bought to make your quarantine more tolerable? So for me, I have, I don't really drink coffee at home. Uh, cause I just like, I'm never usually home under normal circumstances, but I realized that I was going to have to start drinking coffee at home, even though coffee doesn't do that much for me. I like drinking it. So I bought a Mr. Coffee machine and it's like, it was like $17. It's like all plastic. The first two pots just tasted just exactly like plastic. Um, so I'm in the clear now where my coffee tastes like coffee, but that's mine. Um, Frank, what did, I'll go to you first and we'll go back to Bob because Bob's probably just malort. But um, what, have you, what, have, <laughs> what have you bought for yourself to make your uh, quarantine more tolerable? I don't think I've bought anything. The thing that's keeping me sane, my wife and I, for Christmas this year, we, we got a Peloton. So that's Ooh. really what's been, okay. <laughs> that's been a huge savings grace for me in, in staying inside. We also have our, our dogs that we're taking on walks a lot. So it breaks up the monotony of, of being indoors all the time. How does that work? So, I mean, like, who's your tr in instructor on Peloton? Like, do you have a different instructor that you like versus your wife? I mean... Is it from an American, like some other country, like man, woman, like what, what do you do? Do you mix it up? Do you only the same yeah, person? I, I mix it up. I, I'll switch it up. Like I think last night I did like an eighties ride and it started with, uh, I think take me home tonight. So <laughs> just <laughs> nice. whatever, uh, whatever music I'm feeling is where I'll go with it. If I, if I feel like I need to get somebody to kick me, kick me uh, a little bit more into shape, uh, Alex Toussaint's my go-to, uh, if I need somebody to scream in my face. Okay. Okay. Robert, what nice. about you? <laughs> well, I, so we started doing the podcast. Now I got this boom arm right here. You can't see, I got lights. Like I'm, I'm full blown. I'm like a, I'm like a, like a news anchor at this point. I've basically, I'm auditioning. I'm auditioning for my, for my nightly news spot. Uh, 
bought a lot, a lot of white claw. Been just <laughs> crushing, you know, low calorie, a lot of white claw, just killing it. I'm like Dan. I had to buy, so we have an espresso machine. So it's not a, it's not a K cup Keurig for those listening. Probably have the K cup because it's mainstream. We decided we're gonna get the Nespresso machine where you can't buy the little pods anywhere in the country. <laughs> Doesn't matter what, what you what you want, you can't find them. So I'm gonna have to like order coffee pods. That was a whole ordeal. Um, the the my wife is the one that just there's boxes showing up every day, and I, I go downstairs <laughs> and I look and I'm like, what the hell did we buy now? So. There's, gonna, I've got a lot of stuff, you know, I'm, I'm on Amazon. I got Amazon pulled up right now. I'll probably shop a little bit. You know, this is a bad time. Well, I was going to say with, uh, you know, you'd probably dropped 150 bucks on, uh, podcasting equipment. I mean, that probably wiped out the allowance that your wife gave you for the month, huh? You're probably running. I got, running cash. I got cash under the mattress. She doesn't know about <laughs> Yeah, see, Chicago thing. Bobby's not even the mayor of his own home, everyone. Je- Je- Jenny, Jenny, Jenny runs the show. Bobby, she gives him just, she dangles just enough uh, in front of him to make him think like he's got control, but he has none. I, I've been over That's to the That's why I don't spend Stevens a lot of household. time here. Mm-hmm. I don't spend a lot of time here because I'm not in charge. Because, you know, you have to get, I have to go somewhere where I, where I feel like important, like a Starbucks. Yeah. Yeah. You're the, you're the mayor, you're the mayor of maybe one, maybe <laughs> one Starbucks location. Yeah. That seems about right. Pete's coffee. Yeah. I mean, aim low, aim low, Bob. Hey. But yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm, I'm not really coffee snob. I love La Colombe. They're just like a brand that I believe in and I, they're a Philly brand and uh, they make amazing products, but I actually bought, <laughs> I bought a, a Target brand can of coffee for my Mr. Coffee maker. Cause I'm like, if I'm, go- if I'm slumming it, I might, I might as well slum it. Like, full like full bore it's like 269 for 10 ounces of target brand ground coffee <laughs> no um, slumming it is dollar store ground coffee grounds like you if you're gonna slum it i want you to i want you to get something that comes out like mud like there's legit like, mud there's flecks of pink fiberglass just visible yeah in there's <laughs> you need something you need something that hits you know when it hits you it's like you need to do i go to the emergency room after this or am i okay <laughs> am i having a cardiac event <laughs> <laughs> exactly exactly well all right well so last topic i want to uh i want to talk about this tommy john light uh which is just the sort of slang name now for the surgery with the, the repair with the internal brace so frank this is a new development it's only a handful of years old is becoming more and more prominent. I work with a kid remotely who's uh, recovering from this. Um, tell me about the Tommy John repair surgery and, and the prognosis and some of this technology. So the repair actually, believe it or not, is not a new concept. It was done in the late 80s, early 90s. The success rates weren't great, so it kind of fell by the wayside. And with the track history of Tommy John, we said, you know what? stick with TJ. We know it's tried, it's true. It's the gold standard. Do it. Uh, Dr. Savoie down in uh, Louisiana, he did it in the early 2000s and actually published it in 08. His success rates were off the charts for a what a call it a quote unquote new surgery. He had like 93% success rates, kids getting back left and right. But again, it fell by the wayside. Dr. Dugas really kind of reinvented it with the surgical technology that we have available to us today. And Dr. Ahmad's done a ton of them in the last couple of years as well, which is, um, 
besides Dr. Dugas, Ahmad's done the, probably the most in the country uh, with, alongside of him. And uh, our patients are doing extremely well. We, there's only one patient between both Ahmad and Dugas that has had to have it revised. And unfortunately for him, he's a division one pitcher. He actually grew bone around his ligament, just a, a consequence mm. of the surgery, unfortunately for him. But the the surgery didn't fail and uh, Dugas's patient zero his alpha patient is what he calls him was performed in 2013 and that kid had an awesome recovery they uh, the the UCL repair is such a good option for select patients it has to be done in a very specific patient population it can't be done across the board so i'll give you an example if if we're thinking about our ligament as a rope that kind of attaches one one bone to the other if it blows apart in the middle you're getting Tommy John. There's no way that you can repair it. It has to peel off the bone, either at the medial epicondyle or at the sublime tubercle, which is at the ulna. So medial epicondyle, sublime tubercle has to kind of just peel off. And that's a patient that can be in an excellent candidate for this. Again, there's an interoperative decision that has to be made because if you get, you look at an MRI scan and the ligament could look great to, for, or what we call amenable to repair. But when we go in there, Dr. Mott actually pulls on the ligament to see if it is viable. And if it is of good quality, we repair it. But if it's like wet tissue paper and falls apart, it's just not worth it. And those are the kids that wind up getting a reconstruction. So there's a little bit of a caveat in there that we say, look, this is a game time decision. Uh, to the point of the Tommy John light, everybody using the quote unquote light, it's not lower calories. It's not, uh, it, the kids are still getting surgery, you know? And, and again, we talked about the psychological aspect of getting a diagnosis of a UCL uh, injury, whether it's a tear or sprain, whatever it is, it has such a, a heavy impact to kind of bring that to a, to try to lighten that situation, I think is a little disingenuous to these kids because, and saying, hey, you're, you could be back in six to seven months, depending upon what position you're playing. Again, we talked about the recovery timeline not being exactly 12 months for reconstruction. So it's the same thing with a repair. We can tell you that your timeline, again, position dependent is between five and seven months in, in a perfect world, in a vacuum making sure that nothing is no extrinsic factors are, are playing a role in that. So um, I think the kids, if they're being told that it's a, a lighter option, it, you're still having surgery. There's still recovery. There is still a throwing program. There is still a mound progression if you're a pitcher. So again, using the, the light phrasing is I think a little disingenuous to, to these kids. So if I'm hearing you correctly, surgery is still a very serious thing, even if it's a shorter term recovery. Surgery, no matter what it is, shouldn't be taken lightly. It's something that uh, no baseball player should ever say, oh, when I turn 16, I want to have Tommy John surgery just to get it out of the way. If there's no doctor out there that will do it because you need to have some type of pathology for us to, for some type of surgical intervention. Um, But it's not something to be saying, oh, you know what? And it's not going to make you a better player. That's one of the biggest misperceptions of Tommy John surgery. And uh, Dr. Mott actually published that study uh, back in 2012, where it, it was the public perceptions of Tommy John surgery. And there's a large number of players, coaches, and parents who think that Tommy John is a performance enhancer. Performance enhancement is a consequence of the rehab progression. It's not part of, hey, I got a new ligament. I'm going to throw harder. 
Yeah. So for That's kids and parents at home, yeah, do your prehab, actually take good care of your body, work really hard in the weight room, get on a great arm care program, improve your mechanics, and you'll get the same performance benefits as a player who does all that stuff because he has to, to come back from surgery. So Frank, if I'm understanding it correctly, the, this Tommy John light that Dan keeps referring to is not quite the white claw of Tommy John surgery. <laughs> no, I, I, you have white claw. I have polar. Uh, <laughs> Tell me that's alcoholic. It, no, it's no, not. It's, it's a little good. early for that. Yeah. See, on Wednesday, I had some, I had some Kahlua in my, uh, in my coffee. So I was, we were getting, I was getting feeling good. Well, Frank, yeah, have you heard I gotta that? do some work after this. So <laughs> Frank, have you heard the term, uh, airport rules? Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah. I generally, generally speaking, I, I enjoy living by those, but, uh, <laughs> I, I also have to, to be functioning for our patients. So uh, I don't live I, on a day off, maybe a different story. <laughs> So you can have a plate of rolls. <laughs> you can have a plate of spaghetti for breakfast, but but no alcohol. Got it. Makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Polar's good. I think I've That's eaten good, more pancakes in the last three weeks than I have in my entire life. I mean, I think everyone has. Pancakes are incredible. <laughs> but make sure everyone listening, including both of you, double tree cookies. Google it, get the recipe. I'll link in the show description along with ways to find follow with Frank, but make these cookies. Um, so Frank, as we wrap up here, what, uh, what ways can people follow up with you? Um, what, and where can they find you on the web? So uh, you can uh, you can find any resources on Dr. Ahmad's website. It's drahmadsportsmedicine.com. A lot of what I'm talking about is on his website, the UCL reconstruction, UCL repair, uh, even labrum injuries, shoulder dislocations. And uh, for me, I have Instagram, I have Twitter. I'm a little bit more on Instagram than I am on Twitter. It's frank.atc. Uh, and uh, I don't have my own website. So I just refer everybody to, to Instagram and Dr. Ahmad's website. Okay. And yeah, if you're, if you're someone out there in the New York area and you, you know, need good care for your young athlete, or if you're an athlete yourself, you know, consider looking them up because I always refer people, you know, I, I used to live the last nine years in a small town, Bloomington, Illinois, um, you know, like a hundred thousand, 120,000 people, but not near a big city. We're two hours South of Chicago, two hours North of St. Louis, three hours West of, uh, Indy, four hours East of Kansas city. And so, I always just urge people to, to, to go find a doctor that does lots of baseball players, lots of softball players, find someone that that's their expertise because the, the prognosis can be, I mean, or the diagnosis can be very different. I, I have seen a lot of times if you're no, and this is not knocking on any doctor, but you know, like when you're specialized in something, you see lots of baseball players, you see lots of basketball players, whatever your sport is, you're going to get better care because they just have more experience working with that population there it just like you know you've experienced playing baseball your whole life you understand the rigors of it a little bit better so um if you're in the new york area and you guys are looking for someone to have better care i mean really considered you know dr Ahmad's office and, and frank and you can see the passion that he has for keeping athletes healthy and so uh, you know if you're in the new york area definitely look them up um so frank thanks for being on the show we really appreciate it, it was a great conversation i think really helpful for a lot of people awesome thanks guys for having me. I really appreciate it. I have fun. Uh, anytime I could talk baseball, I would much rather do that and given it probably anything else. Yeah. I appreciate it. And thanks, for Frank. everyone out, everyone out there on Twitter and YouTube. Thanks for tuning in. Appreciate you. And uh, be sure to check us out on Spotify, YouTube, uh, you, or iTunes, all your podcast platforms. 
Uh, subscribe to the channel, share with a friend, and we will see you out here next week.